There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Stephanie C. Hill is our guest this week. Stephanie is Executive Vice President of Lockheed Martin, the world's largest aerospace and defense technology company. She leads their Rotary and Mission Systems business, or RMS, which is a $16 billion enterprise employing 35,000 people across the United States and several other nations around the globe. RMS has a vast portfolio of products and solutions that span every warfighting domain, land, sea, air, space, and cyber. RMS has nearly 1,000 programs, including helicopters, integrated air and missile defense systems, ships, undersea systems, and electronic warfare. Stephanie joined Lockheed Martin 36 years ago in an engineering role. Since then, she's held a wide variety of roles throughout the company and risen through the ranks to become a member of the executive leadership team. She's a proud, born and raised Baltimorean who graduated with high honors from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, with a bachelor's degree in computer science and economics. Her alma mater is still a big part of her life. UMBC recognized her with an honorary doctorate in 2017, and she serves on their board of visitors. Stephanie is deeply committed to helping others achieve personal and professional success. She mentors many students and Lockheed Martin professionals, and she's a champion for science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM education. Outside her duties at Lockheed Martin, she leads her experience and expertise as a member of the board of directors of S&P Global and the board of Project Lead the Way, a national nonprofit that develops STEM curricula for pre-K through 12 schools across the country. She's been married for 30 years and has three grown children. And Stephanie, understand you're also a grandmother? Yes, I am. (laughs) Stephanie C. Hill, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And yes, I am a proud Gigi a to Gigi. my granddaughter. Yeah, Gigi's my name, my grandma name. And uh, Harper Grace is my little girl and she's about to turn three. So life is exciting. Love it. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So Stephanie, before we started, I mentioned that we've been doing the show about three years uh, now this month mm-hmm. and we're, this is about our 140th episode. I wow. don't think I've ever read an intro as long as I just did for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. So, congratulations to all your accomplishments, and it's just going to be uh, a great and exciting conversation. And to that, you know, you've had quite a career in a life, and that introduction did begin to do it justice. No, thank first, you for that, Chris. First, tell us about growing up in Baltimore. So, yes, I. You said I'm a I'm a Baltimore girl through and through, and uh, I grew up uh, in Baltimore City. And I'm a product of the Baltimore City public school system. And I actually graduated, and this is kind of a little known fact that this uh, wonderful institution exists, from the oldest public all-girls school in the nation. And it's called Western High School. And we were called the Western Doves. And all three of uh, all three of us, I'm the youngest of three girls, and all three of us attended Western High School. And I grew up with um, you know, amazing parents. Uh, my father was a judge and my mother was a kindergarten teacher who actually, I'll say, retired when I was born. And she said she became a uh, domestic engineer. So I guess technically she was the first engineer in the family. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So sticking with our parents, you know, our parents are an instrumental in shaping who we are. Your parents set very high standards for you and your two sisters, yet they had different approaches for getting the best out of you. Share a story, too, about your parents and what you learned from them. 
Wow. So uh, I'll tell you, I often get asked who my most significant uh, mentors are, who the people who influence me the most are. And Chris, I always start with my family. So my mother as a kindergarten teacher and just as who she is, and she's alive today, 93, and still, you know, the most amazing person I know, and uh, certainly the most amazing mother. And she was a nurturer. So she would give us so much support. And she and my father both would say to all of us, uh, you can do anything in the world you put your mind to do, as long as you are willing to work hard and treat people well. And it was an interesting, as I, as I talked to people, I don't hear a lot of people have those two things kind of come together, but for mommy and daddy, that's, that's what it was about. And uh, mommy also used to say to me, if you know better, you have to do better, irrespective of what anybody else is doing. If you know better, you do better. Daddy, as I said, was a judge and he had uh, grown up. Uh, he started his career as a civil rights attorney in the 1950s. And he had he'd gone on to in Maryland to become the first African-American state senator of Maryland in 1954. And then he went on to become the first black judge on the Maryland Supreme Court, which is called the Court of Appeals. So daddy had very, very high standards for us. He had worked very hard and was committed to making a difference in the lives of others. And so uh, my sisters and I were all really good students. And I can remember coming home with a you know, good grade. I'm getting 95 on the test, Chris. And I'm all excited. I'm bringing it home. And, and mommy's like, oh, baby, I'm so proud of you. And, and daddy was serious and said, where are the other five points? And, you know, bring a 98 the next time. And, where are the, and it, was, it was hard, Chris. As a child, it was very, very hard because I thought he wanted me to be perfect. What I learned and my father's gone now, but I'm so grateful that I learned this before he left us uh, and was able to tell him. He wasn't trying to get us to be perfect. He was trying to say, if you don't have to leave five points on the table, why should you? And if you don't push beyond what you are currently achieving, you'll never get the opportunity to figure out what your potential is. And so, I, you know, if you kind of keep pushing beyond, then you can figure out what you're capable of doing. And so for me, my parents were kind of that perfect really the, kind of that perfect leader combined. You had somebody just pushing you to do everything you could do. And then my mother's just unconditional support in whatever you did. And I just feel grateful uh, for having that experience. So what made you choose computer science and economics? They're two very different fields. <laughs> and were there many women in those fields at UMBC at the time? You know, it's funny. So um, I was really good at math growing up. And I told you both my parents were professionals. And um, so I knew a lot of professional people. The one thing I didn't know was any actual engineers. You know, I didn't have any electrical engineers or systems engineers. At that time, there were really no software engineers or very few when I started uh, going to college. And so when I started at UMBC, I knew a lot, I knew accountants. So I said, I'm going to be an accountant. And so I majored in, started off majoring in economics. I was getting an accounting certificate and I was going to go on to get my CPA to be a certified public accountant. And as we all have to do in college, you take an elective course. And so I said, mm, let me get out of my comfort zone. Let me try something. And I took a really old uh, programming language, Chris, <laughs> but you already said I've worked with Lockheed Martin for 36 years. So everybody knows how old I am, but it was COBOL programming. And I don't, I hope they don't teach COBOL programming anymore, but it was COBOL programming. And I absolutely fell in love with it. It was just, um, you know, kind of a, a dream come true. And so you say, why did I do both? 
remember I said, I didn't know any engineers. STEM wasn't an acronym when I was coming along. And so I said, what I wanted to hold on to economics because I knew I could get a job in economics as an accountant. I didn't know yet what I would do with engineering or with computer science. And so I did internships. I had wonderful career counselors at UMBC who helped me to find in an internship where I could actually use the work I was doing. I found an amazing job and became a software engineer. But you're right. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of of women there at the time, but there were, there were a fair number. I mean, when we had our study groups and our intensive classes, we, there, there were women there. So it was, I wasn't by myself at that time. There were certainly more men, but it wasn't by myself, but I call myself because of that an accidental engineer, because I just kind of, if I hadn't taken that course in COBOL, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I when I tell people, I'm very passionate about telling every everyone, every young person in particular, that we need you to consider a career in STEM. When you think about our nation in the U.S., we need as many engineers and scientists as we possibly can to maintain our competitive advantage. It is particularly important for people in underrepresented communities, like women, like people of color, to understand that this is a career for them. I mean, I, when I share with you, I didn't know any engineers. I didn't even, I literally, Chris, didn't even know this was an option for me. When I told my family, and my family, as I told you, most supportive people in the world, when I told them that I was going to become an engineer, my sister, who loves me to death, said, Stephanie, why would you do that? You're a people person. You're never going to get fulfilled by this career. So I think we've got to tell our stories. We have to shout from the rooftops because people think of an engineer and they think, okay, you're going to be sitting in a room by yourself in the dark, never talking to anybody. Everything we do, we do as a team. Yes, there's there are times when I was a young engineer, when I was by myself and doing writing code and writing software. But there were so many more times when we're with people and uh, do, doing work as a team. We need people to do that. And I, I get really excited about it, very passionate about it because it has given me, I told you my father's life was dedicated to making a difference. I have found such an incredible way to work hard to make a difference through this career in engineering. So I'm really grateful that I found it. Now, and I appreciate your focus on STEM. Uh, my listeners know that I co-founded and run a veteran nonprofit, and we actually set up a scholarship for female veterans not too far from your Old, Domin- Old Dominion studying STEM. And so oh, agree, I agree with you for, for our nation's security and the growth of the nation. We need more folks out there. So I, I appreciate you talking about that. So what did you find, what do you find most rewarding about working in the military defense industry? Yeah, so it's interesting. So when you think about being an accidental engineer and then becoming an engineer and loving it and entering the aerospace and defense industry, it was not something that I would say I planned, right? You know, from a a high school student or a college student. And I have found that it is amazing. As an engineer, like we talked about, you have an opportunity to make a difference in so many different fields. The customers that Lockheed Martin serves, the military customers all around the world, we get to provide them. And I say we get to provide them. You know, we have the opportunity and the privilege of providing them with some of the best capabilities to be able to help them to protect their nations all around the world and to literally, to literally save lives and to to make a difference. I'll tell you one one story. And when I talk about shouting stories uh, from the rooftops, this is one story that I tell because I never thought in, you know, when I think of when I was younger and I thought about what I would do 
as a professional. I never thought I would have an opportunity to make a difference in so many different ways in partnership with the customer. So I'll tell you a story about a program called PTIDS. It's the Persistent Threat Detection System. And it was a system that we were developing for the U.S. Army uh, back in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it was a while ago. There's so many examples of this, but this story I think will speak to you. I know it speaks to me. So PTIDS is basically a blip with a surveillance system. It's got a lot of cameras. It's got uh, radars and things hanging from it, it. And it's mobile. And so what they used PTIDS for in Iraq and Afghanistan was as an improvised explosive device, an IE, a counter IED device. So, you know, you know, you heard about all that in, the, in those wars and how they were killing uh, so many of our soldiers. So when we were working on this program, in order to make sure we were keeping up on our production ramp, our Army customer actually brought footage, video footage of what our systems were doing in the field. So we got to see the insurgents plant IEDs in the street. And then we heard the PTIS operator say to that brigade, you've got to reroute. You've got IEDs here. And then they rerouted. And we knew we had saved lives that day. And then you, the PTIDs uh, panned around and followed the insurgents as they left and saw them go to their neighborhoods where they had arsenals of weapons. And then you saw the U.S. and Afghani soldiers go and be able to get those weapons, secure them. So they were protected. I mean, literally, you, I, you got to see this. The mothers in Afghanistan, would they called PTIDs the angel in the sky. Remember I said it was a blimp. And they would only let their children go outside and play if PTIDs was flying. When you think about that, that's just emblematic of the things that Lockheed Martin does every day in part to, to provide capability to our customers. And it's just, it's inspiring to me. The other thing I'll say about the military industry, we work with some of the finest people on the planet. I mean, I, I am, when I think about my Lockheed Martin colleagues, and I've been here for 36 years, and I have literally never looked for another job. Um, and it's been because of the mission and it's been because of the people. And I'll share just one quick story about the kind of people we work with. And I have so many, as you can imagine, over 36 years, but just in COVID, you talked about starting this next steps forward in COVID. Well, at the beginning of COVID, um, right at, in, well, not quite the beginning, September of 2020, before there were any vaccines or anything else, my 90-year-old mother at the time contracted COVID. She was living in, independently. But, you know, we were at that time in isolation. You couldn't see anybody. And she got COVID. Well, you know what was happening to most 90-year-olds who got COVID. And so there were many strenuous times for me. I'm the only daughter that is still in Baltimore. So I'm kind of her caregiver, which is a privilege and an honor and not a burden. My mother, I says, is the best person in the world. And she will often say to me, Stephanie, thank you so much for what you do. I said, Mommy, what I do doesn't compare to what you did for me. And so and what she continues to do for me. But the piece of this is there were times when she was going through that, when I was on the phone with the doctors, when I was trying to get her care, whatever I was having to do, and I had to lean on my team. You read my bio, $16 billion business, 35,000 people. And I had to say to my amazing team, I can't go to represent us at this meeting. I need you to represent me. And you know what they said? We got you. And they just did it. And they did it in a way that was, you know, some I've heard people say, yeah, I've had my team step in for me too. When they step in for me, sometimes they try to not support me as much. Well, Stephanie couldn't make it. So that never happened. They were, they completely had my back. And I hope that I show them that I have theirs. 
So it's just, I, I've got so many stories like that, but these are the kind of people that we have the privilege of working with at Lockheed Martin and I believe in our industry. And how has the industry evolved during your time in it? And what changes do you foresee in the future? Oh my goodness. So um, it certainly has evolved. And in some ways it kind of feels like we've come full circle in some ways that are, you know, when you look at just the political, geopolitical situation we have that we're in now. So over the course of my 36 year career at Lockheed Martin, I've seen that threat landscape change drastically. We've, like I said, essentially come full circle since I joined the industry really at the end of the Cold War, when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were locked in this global chess match to gain the technological advantage over the other. And our customers at that time were depending on us to help them keep an upper hand. And so today, Chris, we're once again in an era of great power competition where near-peer adversaries are working diligently to erode our technological advantage once again, except this time our adversaries are able to close the gap much faster. So as I meet with our customers across the United States and around the world, the message that I've heard consistently nearly everywhere is the threats we're facing today are the most volatile and most complex we've seen since the end of the Cold War. And they need more capable and agile solutions. And we need to produce them faster than ever before with the same or better quality. And that's why at Lockheed Martin, we're focused on what we call 21st century security. It's our vision to modernize the global aerospace and defense enterprise. And we're focused on building networks that tie together all of our customers' platforms and systems, regardless of whether they're manufactured by Lockheed Martin or another technology provider. We're working to provide a comprehensive picture across all domains. So you talked about um, when we, earlier how in our business I've got land, sea, undersea, space, uh, cyber. So we're looking really to provide that comprehensive picture across all of those domains. That's what we mean by that. To detect threats earlier and make decisions faster than the adversary. And, and that's what's going to win. So we're integrating uh, rapidly advancing technologies like artificial intelligence, advanced computing, 5G communications into the platforms and systems that we have. And we're partnering with other technology companies around the world and certainly partnering with our customer because they, they need us to bring them capability more quickly and it needs to be more quickly uh, modified and the like. And so a key enabler for that it's what we call business and digital transformation. So we're transforming our products. We have digital twins of products. We're using, uh, we have robots that are building on the production floor. We have our factories across different geographies connected. So we can be in Owego, New York and print, 3D print a part in Fort Worth, uh, Texas. So we're doing all of these amazing things to make sure that we are able to deliver faster, as I said, with the same or better quality and do it more affordably. So it's, it's the threats are different. They're faster. And so we have to respond and we do that in partnership, really close partnership with our customers. You just touched me there mentioning a week in New York. I grew up not too far from there. And so know wow. that well, um, you know, and it's amazing for me, we think about the defense industry and you're thinking rockets and tanks and, and fighter jets. But to your point, in today's world, we can be crippled by a computer, by one of our adversaries. And yes. it's, it's as simple as that now. Yes. Uh, so again, that's why STEM is so important. Is, is, is cyber security is so important, but it's also when you, you think about the all the platforms and systems we have across different domains, if we can connect those 
systems and products and platforms that our customers already have, they become a force multiplier for the threat and it helps them to be able to have that decision dominance that they need. So you're telling me I should change my password from password one to three to, to something else? <laughs> yeah, I would advise that, Chris. Maybe, maybe one, two, three, four, exclamation. <laughs> so what were some of the critical moments of your career? You know, it's long and storied. Obviously, you've seen so much. And how did you know you were making the right decisions to help you achieve your goals and reach that next level? Yeah. So uh, again, I, I, I feel truly blessed and grateful to have had the opportunities that I've had at, at the company. And I it's just been really, really good. But I have learned a few things along the way that have helped me to, when you ask about how to know I was making the right decision, didn't always make the right decisions, but here's what I can share with you. I've learned that if you establish a really good track record, as early as you can in your career, it will pay off forever. And, you know, a lot of times people look at a uh, track record as uh, being just performing with excellence. Well, performing with excellence and doing your job well is just an opportunity, is, is, is table stakes. I mean, that you got to do that. When I say developing a track record or really establishing a track record, I'm talking about not only doing work that helps you to be successful, but being a good teammate, making sure that the people around you are successful also. And so many of our recognition systems or performance management systems or whatever you want to call them, look at individual performance. And what we try to do is we try to step back and say, yes, it's about individual performance because you've got to do your job. But boy, oh boy, when you can do your job and you can help others by being a good teammate, that differentiates you. When you can bring not just your technical expertise, Chris, but if you can bring what makes you, you, to the table, you know, bring your full self. There's something about like we've got members of our team there. We can always count on this person to make us laugh when boy, we, when the situation's getting tense or you've got somebody, you know, you've got people that could just, when they walk into a room, they just uplift you and you just might be having a hard day, but you just feel better because they're being themselves. Making the organization, the team that you're a part of better in whatever way you can contribute. That's what I mean. It's the fullness of that. When I talk about, um, building a strong track record. The other thing I've learned so well is that I have had a lot of different jobs over my 36 years. And some of the ones that I really didn't want to do, and I can remember a boss saying to me, um, okay, you're going to get this next role and because you're the right person for it. I didn't think I was ready for it. I didn't think I was the right person for it. And I'm saying, wait a minute, I, I, not me. I'm not going to be doing this. And he said to me, because at that time, he kind of didn't say, well, I don't want to do that job. You just said, you just saluted and said, okay, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'll get it done. When those jobs opportunities happened, when I didn't think I was ready or I didn't want to do it, and I took it, for the most part, they were the best things I ever decided to do. Got out of my comfort zone, stretched myself some, and it just made uh, just such, such a huge, huge difference for me. So um, the other thing, one last, one last piece there. Communication is so important and communication about what your aspirations are. A lot of times people think they're in a, in a role and I get this as a question from a lot of my mentors. They'll say, you know, I worked longer and harder than anybody else, but I see this person getting the job or that person getting the job and I didn't get it. So I asked, I'll first ask the question, well, did you tell your leader that you were interested in doing something different? And so well, why should I have to tell 
him that. Of course he knows that. I said, your leader's not a mind reader. You have to, that person who got that job probably shared, you know, I'd like an opportunity to, to do whatever. Share that. Ask that question. I said, the ne next thing you have to do is you've got to understand what your organization and your team values so that when you're sharing what you do, you're sharing the what, but you're sharing the so what. You're, show, you're sharing the value that you're bringing, not in a braggadocious way, because nobody wants that. Nobody, nobody wants to hear about how good you think you are, right? <laughs> but what people do need to hear is the things that you're doing and how you're contributing to advance the mission of your organization. And in order to do that, you have to listen really well to the things that your leaders and your teammates and other folks in the organization are talking about. You have to understand their objectives. And then when you share, when you have an opportunity to give feedback about some of the things you've done, share it in the terms that the organization understands. It can be just really powerful and really pivotal in creating opportunity uh, for, for you as you go forward. So I, again, I've, I've had a lot of really good mentors who've helped, helped me and, um, and, I've tried to listen to those mentors in order to continue to get better and have different kinds of opportunities. And that's why it tells us we've got two ears and one mouth, right? You listen twice <laughs> as, as much as you speak. Yeah, you know, that, that's good advice. I, I want to go back to your, your comment about being uh, a good teammate. Um, I've had the privilege of managing teams over my career and a couple of times I've been a player coach. And yeah. I've always really focused and in, in, uh, adhered to the rule of um, lead by example. Mm -hmm. And my last team that I coached was, I'm sorry, the manager was about eight years ago. And I actually had a call with somebody from that team about a month ago. And he said, Chris, it's great to connect with you again. And he pulled something up on it from his desk. So I had made for that team, everyone had their own individual plaque uh, that said, set the standard. Yes. And that was my motto and my rule. And he still had that eight years wow. later. Uh, and so that really touched me. So in terms of, you know, being a good teammate, being yes. a good team leader is, you know, they will follow good leaders um, if you set the standard. And so I uh, appreciate that insight and those comments. Um, and I, I was joking in my head, how you said, you know, you've had a lot of jobs there at 30, over 36 years. And I wanted to say, well, we can't, you, can't you keep a job. Uh, I didn't think that was appropriate. <laughs> so, funny. so for a while they had a job, but every two years it's like, boy, I can't keep a job. Can I just say one more quick thing? Yeah, sure. So the other thing that I've learned, and it's part of what you just shared with the setting the standard and all that is choosing the right attitude in situations is so powerful. I think it's almost as powerful as the track record piece. And, and I use the word choosing the right attitude, not having it because you get to choose. And what I've learned is if you work long enough and it didn't really have to be that long, but if you work long enough, there are gonna be times when it's hard to choose the right attitude. When things are going well, it's easy to choose the right attitude. And I'm not saying that attitude is always happy-go-lucky. I'm a real positive person, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying choosing the attitude and not, when things are hard, when things are rough, how you respond is often how you're defined. So in your words, to set, it, set the standard, when we have adversity or we think things might not going our, be going our way, it's important that we reflect and respond and set the example that we want to project and that we want to see versus react. And that's a perfect way to take us to the break. We've been talking to Stephanie C. Hill. I'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Stephanie Seahill. She's the Executive Vice President of Lockheed Martin, where she leads a $16 billion enterprise employing 35,000 people across the globe. She's also a vocal advocate for women in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, also known as STEM and she's a role model for mentorship in the workplace. Stephanie, all these roles require leadership. What does leadership mean to you, and what are the key qualities you believe are essential for a successful leader? Yeah, I think uh, leadership is truly a privilege because you know I like to think about it as we are responsible for caring for the people that we have the privilege to lead. And so I think that the most important job of any leader is to create the right environment and set the right tone in order to get the results that you need. And in order to, and you know, those results are business results. And those results, from my perspective, are helping the people in your organization that you're privileged to lead to reach their potential. And when I think about what that tone is and what that environment is, um, one example I'll give is one of creating a sense of belonging where people really feel that they're a part of something, that they belong in an organization. It's interesting. Lockheed Martin has been on a diversity and inclusion journey for a long time. In fact, we were the leaders in the aerospace and defense industry more than 20 years ago to get started in earnest around this work. And the belonging piece of it takes it to the next level. So, you know, I, maybe four years ago, I might've said, we want to create a culture of inclusion. I use belonging very intentionally. So I'll share with you what I think the difference is. So diversity is like being asked to go to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Belonging is like dancing like nobody's watching, you know, and it's just when I think about that, that's that's the kind of environment we're trying to create in Lockheed Martin, where everybody knows that they belong. And what I have learned over my 36 years 
uh, particularly in the time when I was a leader, is I have four leadership principles, I call them. And those principles are trust, transparency, collaboration, and engagement. And it's interesting when I first started in my leadership career, I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I read a lot. I didn't really have leadership principles. And I started to see, oh, these things really work. Trust at first was trust. I realized that trust was one of the most powerful tools you, that we have as leaders, that we have as people really, but particularly as leaders. And um, this idea of trust is, and, and I'm a big Stephen Covey fan. So he has a book called The Speed of Trust. And I was fortunate. Um, to actually hear him. He came to speak at Lockheed Martin and I heard him. And one of the things that he shared in his book, he states that um, if you want to do anything really hard, it has to be done really fast. The most important enabler is trust. And so he said, and people think trust is a soft thing. They don't think it's a business imperative. He said, I'm here to tell you it is a business imperative. And so he had all the people who were in the audience. He had us say, I want to do do an exercise with you. And he said, so first, write down a, a name of one of your colleagues that you trust implicitly. Write that down. And then think about what it feels like to do work with that person. And so we all write the name down and... Um, you know, we're thinking, boy, easy, fast, uh, you know, pleasant, you know, all the different kinds of things. So he has us do that. And then he says, now think of the person that you wouldn't turn your back on and write that person's name down. Well, Chris, I couldn't write that person's name down because he was sitting right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I did think of him and he said, to think about what it feels like to do work with that person. And, you know, thought about things like hard thought about checking things, uh, doing pre-reviews, you know, just taking, and it was very inefficient. So the idea is, is that trust is really important, not just for how your team feels. It is important for how your team feels, but it's important for uh, efficiency and business imperative as well. I believe as a leader, the biggest thing we can do is make sure that our team trusts us as leaders and that they trust each other. And you have to work on trust. You have to keep your commitments. You have to admit when you're wrong. So one of the hardest things for for a lot of leaders to do is when we have not gotten it right to say, I've not gotten it right. I think it is so powerful when you do that because when because nobody gets things right out all the time. And when you do that and you share that you're willing to do the work to correct whatever that is, the trust that is built in that organization is huge, not just with you and your team, but think about when your leaders go and meet with their teams and that same thing begins to happen, the the level of trust in the organization begins to build. And when you're doing really hard things, you need trust. The other thing that goes hand in hand with trust is transparency. Transparency, at Lockheed Martin, we do really hard things. We, we, we solve some of the world's, literally some of the world's most complex challenges. And so you're going to have problems when you're doing that. You're not, everything's not just going to go right every time and you're going to need help. So we want our teams to be transparent about the things they need help with. The old adage used to be, don't bring me a problem unless you have the answer to it. Remember people used to say that, Chris? I do. (laughs) Well, that's, first of all, that's sort of a crazy thing to say, because if I had the answer, why would I be bringing you the problem? You know, it just doesn't make sense, but what we're saying is, no, we need the good, bad, and the ugly. So on my team, I would rather have you come and say, I'm not sure that I need any help yet, but I have a problem that I'm working on, Not because it's still your, their job to, to solve the problems and to work through it. 
And it's our jobs as leaders to create an environment where people can ask for help if they need it. So I'd rather somebody say, I'm not sure that I need your help yet, but I'm letting, I'm making you aware of this. And I'll let you know if I need your help. What could come out of that is, and has come out so often, we might know somebody in a different part of the business who's experienced exactly that thing. And we might just be able to say, why don't you call Chris and ask him? Because I think he experienced that. The earlier we, what's the, the old adage that is true, good, bad news does not get better with time. So the earlier we can know it, the more we're able to do it. Now, in order to have that transparency, the reason I say it works hand in hand with trust, when the first time that person says, okay, I believe them, they want me to put the good, bad, and the ugly out there. And they come and they give you something ugly. And then you react poorly to it. They're not going to, they're not going to come back. And so what we, we have worked on for many years, and I think we're there now, there's always room to grow, but we try to say, look, when somebody brings us a hard problem, first thing we're going to say is thank you. And then we're going to roll up our sleeves and try to figure out how we can help that person uh, to, to, or have that person or that team to be successful. Collaboration and engagement. That's a part of that sense of belonging, part of that inclusion. As a leader, it's really important to understand that you really do need all voices at the table. It's not just that everybody is invited, that I think your team ought to feel like you're thirsty for their voice, that you're thirsty for their ideas, because that's how you get innovation. I think that that collaboration doesn't mean we're always agreeing. The, one of the best things that can happen is to make sure that that dissenting opinion is heard. And that you collaborate with the person that you're not agreeing with because they just might open your mind to something you can't see because of the lens that you have. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make any of us bad people. It's just the difference. So let's invite that dissenting opinion. Let's collaborate. Let's engage people from other organizations, from other teams at different levels. You know, a lot of businesses are very hierarchical. It's really important that we engage that person on the team. I can remember one, one quick story. We were putting together a really big bid. It was a really big opportunity for us. And uh, with conference was full of people, very senior people at the table. We had a lot of other people in the room. So we had them kind of around the table and we were talking about a strategy. And I kept seeing this person on the side, let's call her Tina, who was trying to get in with something. And it turns out Tina was actually, we have, we call them capture leads. She was actually the deputy capture lead to capture this big opportunity. So as a deputy capture lead to make that really clear, Tina probably had the best view of what was going on with the customer, with what they needed, yet she was more junior. So she wasn't sitting at the table because it just wasn't enough space at that time. And so I looked at her and I said, Tina, do you have something that you wanna offer? And she said, yes. And she shared a piece of data that was just changed the whole dynamic and changed our strategy for that capture. We implemented what she said and we won. If we hadn't, if Tina hadn't been raising her hand to engage and we hadn't pulled her into that conversation, we would have missed out. So she had the trust that we would listen. Fortunately, we were able to bring her in and it just makes uh, such a huge difference when you, when you have those, I think, when you have those principles and they all just work really well together. You know, Stephanie, as I sit here and, and listen and see and learn more about you and your, your leadership style, a couple things come to mind. Uh, first is I want to go knock a wall down for you or go take that hill. Uh, and the second is, can I send you my resume when we're done? 
<laughs> please, please, please. <laughs> you know, and I want to go back a moment ago. You talked about uh, the Stephen Covey book. Yeah. Have you ever thought about writing a book on leadership? <laughs> you know, I might do that. I, I, I have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of good, I have a lot of stories. I have a lot of experiences. And, you know, a lot of times people will say to me, Stephanie, do you have any regrets? And I would say, certainly there's some things I wish I had done differently. And I don't look at them as regrets. I look at them as when faced with something that didn't quite go as well as I wanted to, how can I learn from it personally? How can I hold up the mirror and say, what could I have done differently to have created a better outcome? But not just how I can learn. If there's something I can share that can help somebody else understand and learn. That's why I share a lot of stories because I think people can understand through stories that may a little bit better. And, and so I, 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 I feel responsible to share some of those things because again, I've had so many good people in my life and so many opportunities. So I might no, just write that book. No, let me know. I, I got a guy <laughs> for you, but, but I agree with you in terms of sharing those stories, those, those learned life experiences. That's how you tell people like I've been there. I've done that. And this is what either worked or didn't work. And things don't always work. And you figure out and you learn from it and you pivot. Yep. And I think it's important for people to know, especially people who are in leadership positions and, and senior leadership positions, uh, that, yeah, there have been challenges. And so if you have a challenge, don't feel defeated. Pick yourself up, figure out what you can learn from it, and then apply it and move on. Move forward. With your next steps forward. Move forward. <laughs> That's a good plug. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> So in the first half of the show, we talked about being a good team member. How do you inspire and motivate your team members to achieve their best performance and foster a positive work environment? So there are a lot of different uh, things that come to mind, but let me just give you one thing that we're working on now inside of uh, the Rotary Mission Systems organization. And we're working on uh, something, employing something called psychological safety. So it, it's very, very closely linked to trust. Um, but psychological safety, as you, as it is defined, is being able to speak up with ideas, questions, concerns, uh, or admit mistakes without fear of uh, your reputation or career being compromised. And you know, the idea is that if we can create a psychologically safe space. We can get sort of the craziest ideas. We can get the dissenting opinions that are going to make the difference. We can get that transparency that we, uh, we we so desperately need in order to get that next innovation that's going to deliver for our customers, as we talked about earlier, whatever that happens to be. And so it's really important that people feel like they are in a safe environment. Now, it's interesting. When we first started that, people thought that meant every meeting we ever had was going to be the uh, we, like we were skipping through the meadow and through the park, right? And that maybe there wouldn't be any hard questions or um, or disagreements. And what we said is no. If you've got a psychologically safe space, what should happen is you should have the opportunity to have those harder discussions more easily, because again, you know that. You're not going to be at risk. You can ask the dumb questions. You can share. You can speak truth to power because you, you know that that leader is going to appreciate you telling her, if we do it that way, it's not going to work. And here are the five reasons why. And so some, what, what, I would, what we try to do in, in our Rotary Emission Systems part of Lockheed Martin 
is we, we start off meetings saying this is a psychologically safe space. We will, I will often say, you know something, team, when that happened last week, I got that wrong. I got that wrong. And and here's how I'm going to correct it. And and I'm I apologize for getting that wrong that day. You know, and because when you do that, you show people it's okay to be human. And if you as a leader can show up as a person who cares about the people in the organization and who feels that it is a privilege to lead those people that are entrusted to you, you give license for everybody in the organization to do the same. It becomes a good contagious virus that just catches on. And then people can actually, you give people a language to have that discussion. And so we talk about this a lot. I'm having a leadership meeting uh, with all of my vice presidents and directors in, um, in a couple of weeks. And we're going to talk about this out loud, about what it means and what it doesn't mean. So um, I think you've got to lead by example. You've got to set that right environment. You've got to admit when you're wrong. And, and, you've, and you've got to let people see you be a person. I love that it's okay to be human. And I think as we have gone through COVID uh, and the pandemic, and now we're out the other side for the most part, thankfully, um, you know, the word we've been using recently has been grace, yes. share more grace. And yes. if we can start thinking about it's okay to be human, it's okay to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And if we give people latitude, and a little bit of grace, we're going to figure things out. Yeah. yeah. Now here's the other thing I'll say. If someone is making the same mistake over and over and over again, then you know something, it's time to have some development, some training. It is, it's time to, to help that person to be successful as you help the organization to be successful. So it's, 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 and I think those things are, those are things are both true. Yeah, absolutely. So there's the old adage, bosses have to be bosses, or perhaps in this case, it's better to say leaders have to be leaders. And that means they're not always popular. How can leaders prioritize and delegate tasks effectively and give honest feedback while still maintaining a strong connection with your team? Yeah. So I'll answer that in two ways. Um, the first way is when you're talking about delegating and empowering, I, I look at those also as being inextricably linked. But the in order to get there, you have to understand what the goals are. What are we trying to achieve? So a leader has to provide a really clear vision of what the goal is and what we're trying to achieve, whether that's on the grand scale of strategy, whether that's on the execution milestones on a program. And then people have to understand how they fit into that. How do, what's my role? What's my responsibility? What level of empowerment do I have? What kind of uh, latitude do I have? When do I have to come to you to ask for permission? And one of the other things that we're working on is making sure that our workforce is empowered to make decisions where the data is so that we can eliminate bureaucracy and the like. And so I think that you could look at it as a, as a new leader. Some new leaders look at it as I've, I used to do all the work myself. I used to get measured on doing the work and getting it accomplished. And boy, that feels good. So not only do you moving into a leadership role have to change your own gratification system, right? Because a lot of what you do is going to be done through others. That is particularly true the more senior you get. But you have to view it as the people that you have the privilege of leading want to do their jobs. They want to know how they fit in. So you're empowering them 
as you delegate tasks. And when you delegate tasks, you delegate that with an appreciation and a confidence that the people on your team have what it takes to get the job done. You infuse confidence in them so that they can get that work done. There's a quote that says, good leaders inspire others to have confidence in them as leaders. Great leaders inspire others to have confidence in themselves. So as you are empowering and you're delegating, you 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 do that. You coach, to your point earlier, Chris, you know, you you can you be that coach because as you're empowering and you're delegating, and particularly for people who haven't done that before or made these kinds of decisions, they're going to make some mistakes. And when they make a mistake, you bring them in and you say, okay, let's talk about it. And then they learn from it and you go forward and you you send them back out to do that next really hard thing. But you also let them know to the point I made earlier that if they have a question or a concern, your door's open and you can come and you can have a conversation. Now with the feedback piece, when we talked a little bit about this in the last uh, discussion around if somebody's getting something wrong a lot, or if somebody's not showing up the way they need to show up or whatever that is, it is imperative to give feedback. And that's one of the hardest things. I, I, if you were to look at leadership and where a lot of leaders go wrong is a lot of leaders do not like to give constructive feedback. Or if they give it, they give it harshly by saying, you know, something that is more hurtful than constructive. And I'm a fairly nice person. And so one of the things that often surprises people is I also give a lot of honest, constructive feedback to people about their performance or their behaviors. And you know what? I try hard, Chris, to make sure that as I'm giving that feedback, people understand the reason I'm giving that feedback is because I care about them. I want them to be their best selves. And if nobody ever tells you what you need to work on or how you need to do better, you can't do it. So you really cheat your team out of potentially being their, being their best selves if you see something that they could work on and don't tell them. At the same time, I, I'm a leader who asks for feedback. We do retrospectives on our team. And when I have my one-on-ones with my team members, I used to say, what feedback do you have for me? And I would get nothing. They would be like, oh, no, everything's fine, Stephanie. Everything's wonderful. <laughs> so then I said, let me phrase this a little differently. I'll say, now what I say, and I don't do it in, on every one-on-one I have with them, but I do it occasionally. I'll say, what could I do more of, less of, or differently that could help you to do your job better or could make your job easier? And then somebody will say, you know what? I remember one time the person said, Stephanie, you know what? I want to get more flow down information from the organization, or I need you to remind us about these rules of engagement, or, you know, something sometimes when we're talking about something, I know you, this is, this is a great example of getting real feedback that doesn't always feel good. (laughs) So Stephanie, I know you like this inclusion thing and this collaboration thing, and you like inviting all these voices in, but at this point, at that time, we just needed to get to a decision. So we should have stopped talking a long time ago. I said, Thank you for saying that. It was a, right? It was, I was so, I can't say I was happy at the time, but I was so grateful that they felt they could bring that to me. I've incorporated that into what I, my leadership style now, where I I check in to say, are are we doing okay on this? So you got to give that feedback. And if you give it in a way, in, in, in the spirit 
that is positive intent for that person and the organization, people will be able to hear it. You know, while you're giving the feedback, you've got your proverbial or your, your figurative arm around them. And then you got to be willing to accept feedback as a leader, make some changes. And it just helps build that trust, build that team. And uh, I, I think sets, I, I think sets a really good example for leadership. Stephanie, we have just a few minutes left and I always like to close on a positive note. So I'd like you to take us to the end of this episode by telling us what gives you the most hope for the future and why should others share that same optimism? Yeah, so um, when I see, I, I talk to you a lot about how our teams are working on uh, the sense of belonging and the psychological safety and this trust. I see our teams moving and working together more collaboratively than ever before. At, at Lockheed Martin, we have um, something that we call 1LM, where we know that if we work better together as an organization, we can deliver for our customers in an incredibly differentiating way. So I see that in our organization. But when I think about that sense of belonging, I expand it beyond, I have children, I have three adult children, 29, 25, and 21. And as I look at them and their friends, and I see some of the differences that people pointed, the physical differences that people point out when I first started in my career or, you know, or through the years, and I see them embrace every single person in a way that is um, inspiring. I have a lot of positive hope for the future because all those false barriers that we might have thought were real for them, they're not real. So they're not going to have that to get through. They're just going to keep it moving, keep delivering, and everybody's going to dance like nobody's watching. Stephanie C. Hill, Executive Vice President of Rotary Mission Systems for Lockheed Martin Corporation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Really, really enjoyed your conversation. Thank you, Chris, so much, so much. And I really hope you write that book. I'll let you know. <laughs> Please do. We'll have you back. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.